Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Welcome uh, to all of you who are praying with us tonight on uh, Monday night. Um, but you've heard us referring to it as the Eve of Tuesday. And uh, uh, whether you're familiar with uh, our parish or not, you might um, see that the shape and the form and, the, uh, and how the, the church is set up is a little bit different. Um, oh, by the way, what I'm doing, this is not the sermon. Uh, this is like a little prelude to the sermon talking about the rites and rituals and why do we do what we do. Somebody asked me a question yesterday and said, Father John, during Holy Week, is it okay for us to use the sanctuary? And I answered, um, uh, no, uh, you know, like, you know, the rites and rituals were made for us to express our love to God. So, you know, we can do whatever we want, but that's not the right of the church, right, R-I-T-E, not R-I-G-H-T, uh, like not right and wrong, but the right rituals of the church, and I'm going to explain to you why. Today, the church is set up the way it is. Now, if you remember, in Jesus' time, all of this was happening just before the Passover, and what they would do for part of the rite of the Passover was they would go to the temple and they would buy a Passover lamb. And or a sacrifice, usually a Passover lamb. If they were not able to buy a, a lamb, if they were too poor to this or that, they would get together with another family. If their family was small, they couldn't consume a whole lamb. They would get together with another family and so on. They'd all pitch in and they'd buy a lamb. And that was part of the buying and selling that was happening in the temple that Jesus is not so fond of that we heard about yesterday and we heard about this morning. But I'm not going to talk too much about the readings because uh, we'll talk about that uh, in the sermon, or it would be at least referenced in the sermon. Now, they buy the Passover lamb, then they would bring it to wherever they were staying, because people journeyed from all over Israel to Jerusalem, so from the north, and from the east, and from the south, there wasn't too much south, south of Jerusalem is, you know, desert areas, but there were some, some inhabitants there, but anyways, mostly the north and the, and the east, and they would travel all towards Jerusalem, and they would, and, and people in Jerusalem, the people who lived there too, they would buy a lamb, and they would put it in their yard, and they would examine the lamb, because the, the lamb had to be without blemish, so they had to examine the lamb, and so, and this was like a, this was like part of the ritual, you know, so you bought the lamb, you got the lamb, you put him in your yard, for about four days before the lamb was slaughtered on Passover at the temple and its blood was spilled and then you take it home and you cook it in the way you're supposed to, you roast it in the way it's supposed to be roasted, etc. Right? Jesus is our Passover lamb. And so, Jesus, you'll notice in the sixth hour reading of the gospel today and in a couple of other readings, it said that he didn't stay in Jerusalem. He stayed in Bethany, or on the Mount of Olives, either in Bethany with his friends there, Lazarus and Mary and Martha, his friends there, or he also spent a few nights on the Mount of Olives. Remember, Jesus was poor, and the Airbnb rates went through the roof when the entire nation came to all to all to the capital city, right? Um, and so uh, uh, it was a lot, you know, made a lot more sense. For them to just camp out in the fields on the Mount of Olives. So during this time, we as a church say, Jesus, if you're staying outside the camp, if you're like in, in, the, in, the, in the laws of the Passover in Exodus 12, you'll, say that, you'll see that the lamb had to be kept outside the camp. Because they were, remember 40 years, they were traveling in the desert, that's when they you know, got the Passover laws that when they came out of Egypt. Last year we talked about the Passover at length, right? Um, whether you were there or not. Anyways, when Moses brought the people out of the, out of, out of the land of Egypt, God gave them this, this, this thing called the Passover, where they have to slaughter a lamb. Uh, it has a lot of significance, and there's so much that could be said, but I'm just going to, right? And basically, it was their key to freedom. That's all you need to know. What was their key to freedom? And the, and the sign of, of the Passover lamb was that they took from the blood of the lamb and they put it on their, lint, on their doorposts and on the, the crossbar of the doorpost called the lintel. 
They put it on there, and that's how they knew that this house was covered with the blood of the Passover lamb. And then he told them, you're going to do this every year from generation to generation on the, on the X day of the month of Nisan and so on and so on, right? And so it became, a, it became a ritual for them to do, right? So we as a church, we see Jesus as our Passover lamb who is being kept outside the camp, who is being kept outside the house, right? And so the whole of Holy Week happens out here. It doesn't happen in there because our lamb is being examined. Now on Thursday, the lamb is taken to the temple on Thursday evening or Friday. Don't quote me. I, I, can't, I can't remember exactly, right? And is slaughtered. Now, some commentators say there's, there's a little controversy about this, but it doesn't matter. That coincides with the Last Supper, and some people say it coincides with, with the crucifixion. People who are smarter than me, I read about this every year and I forget. But So that's why, that's why the church is the way it is, and that's why we're, we're all sitting over here. And if we had like a deacon's choir that is elevated, that is like closer to the altar, like you might see in some churches, you'll notice if you visit those churches or watch their live stream that the deacons aren't sitting up there. They're sitting here with the people. Sometimes they'll take a few of the pews. What they used to do in the church I grew up in is they would take a few of the pews that are in the from the congregation here and they would turn them to form two choirs here, a north choir and a south choir. We talked about that yesterday and so on. Right to say that we are all staying outside the camp. So we change the setup of the church until Jesus enters into Jerusalem and stays the night there. Thursday night, he stays the night there, right? Until Friday and then, and then he's crucified. So that's a little bit of why the church is set up the way it's set up. You'll notice that the lighting is kind of dim. That's not something that's written in the rubrics and the rites of the church. But you'll also notice the black flags and you'll notice the black altar curtain and so on. We're not really, we're not mournful. Some people would say it's mournful. The tombs, you'll notice, are a little bit slower um, and are a little bit, a little bit longer. Uh, and it's not we're not mournful because we know we know what's we know the story we know what's going to happen we know that jesus is going to suffer the, the the most horrific brutality known to mankind but we also know that he's going to descend to hades and rescue all of those who are in hades and we also know that he's going to resurrect so we know the story ends well we're not worried you know we're not worried about jesus well-being in the sense of like we don't know how this is going to go but we recognize the solemnity of the event we would call it solemn you know what it's like some people would say it's like a funeral a funeral is solemn but it's also sad so it's not really the example i would like to take i would say it's more like the crowning of a king or a queen you know, we don't live in a nation like in a monarchy, so maybe it's a little bit far removed, you know. But imagine the crowning of a king or a queen. There will probably be some speeches. It's my guess, it's just a hunch that there aren't going to be a lot of jokes said in those speeches. It's a solemn moment. This is, this is a moment which is going to change the history of this nation. And it's going to be taken with a lot of seriousness and people have an enormous amount of respect for it. And every moment is like something enormous. That's how we feel about this week. We take this week with a lot of solemnity or a lot of, it's a sober week. You know, it's a week where, you know, we're, yesterday we were talking about keeping in step with Jesus. You know, we want to we wanna stay on par with Jesus. We're walking step by step with Him. And we, whatever He did on Monday night, we're doing that. Whatever He talked about on Monday night, that's what we're reading. We're, we're keeping in step with Him. 
We talked a little bit about the Paschal phrase yesterday, thine is the power and the glory and the blessing and so on. But uh, we'll mention something else about it. We pray it 12 times in each hour. So you'll notice that, that the service on our schedule is about two and a half hours long. But it's divided into hours. First hour, third hour, sixth hour, ninth hour, eleventh hour. What's up with the hours? They are kind of like divisions. Let call them chapters. Uh, call them episodes. Okay, you know. So we're in like we're into like what season three, <laughs> right? You know, with has five episodes. You know, called the the first hour, the third hour, the sixth hour, the ninth hour. It was a way of dividing up prayers and. The prayer book of the Coptic Orthodox Church that kind of forms like the basic of, basis of our prayers is this book. You'll find one in your pew, right? But we don't use this book. And if you look at the front of it, you'll find that it's also divided into hours. First, third, sixth, ninth, and so on. What's up with that? You know what's very interesting is that when it came to Holy Week, the early church just took the practice that was going on in the temple and added Christianity to it. So it took the structure of the prayers that people were used to. So that's what they used to do. In the temple, they had prayers. They had 12 sets of prayers, for, or, or 12 sets of prayers, 1st, 3rd, 6th, 9th, 11th, and 12th hour, right? But the 12th hour is often considered the first hour of the following, of the, you know, of the morning. And then 1st, 3rd, 6th, 9th, 11th, hours and then the 12th hour was like the beginning of, of the next day. And so that's, so that was the structure. So we're following the same structure. Now in this book, you'll find that in each hour, there's 12 psalms, except for the morning hour and the midnight hour. But anyways, by and large, there's 12 psalms. So why don't we just pray these psalms? What's with thine is the power and the glory and the blessing and the majesty forever and so on. I'll tell you what it is. Almost every single one of the Psalms has something prophetic about Jesus. And most of those prophecies, not all, but just over half of those prophecies have to do with Jesus' suffering and with His death and with His resurrection and with His ascension. Psalm 15, if I go down to Sheol, Hades, you are there. But we don't want to be talking about Jesus going down to Hades because then we're going to get our timelines all confused. He does that on bright Saturday. He does that on the service that goes from like midnight or 11 p.m. Friday night to Saturday morning. So we don't want to be talking about that now. We want to be talking about Monday night now, right? And so that's why we don't use the Psalms. Because we want to keep in step with Jesus. Whatever Jesus is doing today, that's what we're reading about. That's what we're praying about. That's what we're contemplating about. That's what we're trying to live and to experience with Him. And so the Psalms are the same from day to day. You know, there's not a first hour in the Coptic Church, in the Coptic Rite. In the Byzantine Rite, there is variations. But not in the offices, but in... In, in their readings and so on. But the, for, in, the, in the Coptic rite, the prayer book is the same day by day by day by day. So it would be the same readings each day. So it wouldn't be specific to the day. But we want to follow with Jesus and we want to keep in step with Him. There's many other beautiful contemplations on Thine is the Power and that the Paschal Praise. You find a beautiful book by His Holiness Pope Shenouda of the Blessed Memory. Uh, that you can find online called Contemplations on Thine is the Power, um, and so on. If you need help finding it, you can let me know. We can send it to you by email. But, um, so that's a little bit of why we're doing um, what we're doing. Now the last thing is, what's this business of the Eve of Tuesday? It, you know, the, whoever's announcing the hour, the priest or the deacon keeps saying, the Eve... The first hour of the eve of Tuesday, the first hour of the third hour of the eve of Tuesday, the sixth hour of the eve, like, why not just call it Monday night, you know? What's, why the eve of Tuesday? Sounds so complicated, I'll tell you why. Because in Jewish worship and in Jewish practice, the day started 
at sunset the day before. So the day started with the evening and then the morning. The evening hours and then the morning. Interestingly, not that this is a seminar on entrepreneurship and productivity, but in the entrepreneurship and productivity world, everybody is writing about starting your day the night before. You know, ending your workday with preparing for your following workday. And ending your personal day with preparation for the next day. And we did a series about that maybe about six months ago, so we're not going to talk about that now. But hey, yesterday I was saying, uh, on Palm Sunday, I was saying, you know, we did it first, right? We did it first this time around as well, right? And it works. It works when I, on a, on a very personal level, if I prepare myself in the evening by prayer and contemplation and slowing down, and then I wrap my day up and I go to bed, I wake up tomorrow ready for a brand new day. And so the church is trying to teach us these healthy habits, you know, that we've carried on from Old Testament Jewish practice. So that's why you'll find the, the eve of a day and the morning of a day are kind of buddied together. And that forms the day. And that's why we call, keep calling it the eve of Tuesday and so on. So that's a little bit about our rites and rituals and our practices. And every, every day we'll have like a little tidbit to kind of help us all be acquainted with why we're doing what we're doing. If you have any questions about why we're doing what we're doing, feel free to come and ask me or to slip me a note or something, um, and I can address it in these little comments. So that's that. Now, uh, I'd love to introduce to you um, uh, um, Rono Mata, who's going to be uh, starting, starting off. I introduced our sermon series yesterday, and he's going to be kicking off with the the first session talking about the prodigal son, how he was, how the parable of the prodigal son was understood in, in first century Middle Eastern times um, in relation to repentance and in relation to our lives and in relation to the readings today. God bless you. Okay. Thank you, Buna. Um, so, before we begin, um, I'll just summarize for us sort of the uh, themes of the day, the events of the day. Um, is actually a very nice uh, book that was made by some of the servants in the church, and it actually summarizes a lot of the themes and events of the day for each day, for each hour. So, if you want to go through the specifics of each one, feel free to go through that. I'm going to sort of give you the general themes, okay? Um, so... In the morning, uh, the first hour and the third hour, uh, we hear about the story of Jesus condemning the fig tree. Um, we follow that up with what happens just right after it, which is Jesus purifying the temple. That's in the sixth hour. And then in the ninth and the eleventh hour, Jesus is questioned in the temple by the Pharisees and the authorities there. By what authority do you do these things? And then in the eleventh hour, um, he answers um, uh, the question, who do you make yourself out to be? By what authority do you do these things? Then in the evening this evening, Jesus starts in the first hour by telling us to strive to enter through the narrow gate. Then he prophesies against Jerusalem. Uh, and then in the sixth hour, he tells us to watch and pray. Uh, then in the ninth hour, he goes back to the theme of hypocrisy, which was covered in the morning through the story of the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple. Um, and uh, he, he says the many woes, woe to you Pharisees, woe to you lawyers. Uh, and then finally, uh, in the 11th hour again, he reminds us to watch and be ready. Um, and so uh, Abuna introduced to us the theme that we're going to follow for the week. Um, and the theme, if you remember, is lost and found. Um, and so we'd like to uh, follow the events of the day while we reflect on this theme of lost and found. To help us better understand this theme today, uh, I'll focus on the events of the day and I'll use the parables in Luke chapter 15, one of which is the prodigal son, um, to help us sort of understand and put in context what's going on. 
So, today's Monday, okay? The eve of Tuesday, right now. The day after Palm Sunday. So it's the day after Jesus triumphantly entered into Jerusalem. Um, and uh, right after that, he left Jerusalem. Okay, he went outside. So like we heard from Abuna, Jesus didn't spend the night in Jerusalem. He would go outside and he would spend it in a, a town nearby called Bethany. Uh, and that was about a 15-minute walk from Jerusalem. Um, and so uh, every morning they would go back into the city, back into Jerusalem. So they would climb a mountain because Jerusalem was on a mountain. They would climb up to it to get there. Uh, and so the two main events that we go over this morning are um, on the way, or on the way into Jerusalem, and then once they're inside. On the way into Jerusalem, Jesus sees a fig tree and condemns it. And then they go into Jerusalem, they go into the temple, and Jesus cleanses the temple, or purifies the temple, or goes in and, and turns over all the tables and kicks all the money changers out of the front court of the temple. Okay? Uh, and keep in mind that those two stories are told in that way in the Gospels because they're related, because they really help, uh, one helps to illustrate the other, okay? The first event, really, uh, the first event, the cursing or condemning of the, the fig tree, happens to explain and to highlight for the disciples and for us the second event, which is the purifying of the temple. So, uh, Jesus here in the first event is behaving like any of the previous prophets of Israel. Um, he uses a real-life event that's fantastic, that's miraculous, that really grabs the attention of everyone around to explain God's salvation plan and what will happen to God's people. Okay, so that's what the fig tree event is trying to do for the disciples and for us, the readers of the gospel. So let's set the scene. It's Monday morning, Jesus and the disciples are leaving Bethany, a small town, 15-minute walk away from Jerusalem, and they're heading up the mountain on which is the great temple of Jerusalem. And we read a few things. So we read that Jesus is hungry, he sees a tree, he goes to the tree, he inspects the tree, and he's looking for fruit, okay? And then he doesn't find any fruit in the tree, so he condemns the tree. And the next day, when they're passing by the same spot on the same route into Jerusalem again, the disciples notice that the tree has withered away, and they point this out to Jesus. So let's dive into this story and highlight the important things for us as to how Jesus carries out our salvation through this event. Okay, so the first thing is Jesus is hungry. Okay, Jesus hungers. Hunger is sort of this irrational human instinct that we all have, right? When we're hungry, we can't think. We often say, like, you know, I'm hangry. Like, I'm just, like, behaving not like myself because I'm so hungry. And it says uh, in both the, this, this story of Jesus and the fig tree is both in Mark and in Matthew. We read both this morning, okay? Um, and and uh, it says Jesus uh, was hungry, in both of them. So obviously that's a point that the uh, gospel writers wanted to emphasize to us, that Jesus was hungry, right? Otherwise they wouldn't point that out. Um, and uh, the fact that they pointed out means that he probably was very hungry, right? He's like getting up in the morning, they're going to walk into Jerusalem, they probably haven't had breakfast yet, so he's hungry. Um, and you know, he, he's hungry enough that he sees this tree in the middle of the desert and he's willing to, like, go and see, is there anything on this tree to eat? Like, I'm that hungry. Like, I'm willing to just, like, find a random tree on the side of the road and I'm willing to eat from the tree, right? So why is that, why is that important for our salvation? Well, we see, like, where else do we see Jesus describing this sort of, like, irrational hunger? How can we understand it? Has he ever described it in some other way before? And that's where Luke chapter 15 and the parables that he tells us in Luke chapter 15 kind of help us understand that. They really highlight the same sort of irrational hunger that God has for us. And this actually happens a few months before the events of today. So let's set up the context, okay? Luke 15, chapter 1. 
Um, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So Jesus is a respected rabbi in this, in this scene in Luke chapter 15. He's a respected rabbi. He's like a scholar. Uh, and he's essentially equivalent in social status to one of the Pharisees, right? People look to him as a rabbi, as a teacher. Um, and the Pharisees see him as one of them. But there's something they don't like. The Pharisees were a group of people that believed it was their duty before God to keep a precise observance of the Jewish law. And they knew that they lived among other people who didn't follow the law so precisely. Uh, and so they decided that in order to maintain their ritual purity, um, they would at least be very careful about meals. Okay, So they would, um, when they would sit down to eat meals, they would prepare carefully, they would cleanse themselves carefully in a 100% you know, uh, proper fashion according to the laws that they were given through Moses, um, and that there would be no outsiders at the meal who were ceremonially, uh, ceremonially uh, impure or unclean. People who weren't precisely following the law would not be at their meals. So Jesus eating with other sinners is a big deal. Okay, It's a big deal to them. It, it says that Jesus welcomes sinners and he eats with them. Okay, it, it is completely unacceptable to them. It just doesn't fit. It doesn't make sense. It goes against their worldview of what a rabbi should do. And it's irrational to welcome and eat with sinners. So... They highlight this to Jesus. They say, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And Jesus responds to the Pharisees by telling them three parables in a row. And uh, these parables, like in succession, highlight for us this same irrationality that God has in his hunger towards us. So the first parable is the good shepherd who had a hundred sheep and loses one sheep. And he goes... This one sheep goes astray, so he leaves behind the 99 sheep, and he goes and looks for the one lost sheep. And then when he finds that one lost sheep, he puts him on his shoulders, brings him back home, gathers all his friends and neighbors to rejoice. The second story is the woman with 10 coins, and she loses one of the coins, and she searches all night for the coin until she finds it. And then she gathers all her friends and neighbors to rejoice that she just like reacquired 10% of her wealth back. <laughs> and those two stories highlight for us God's irrational love for us. He'll do anything to bring us back when we're all alone, when we're lost in the middle of the desert uh, like that sheep, even if it means leaving behind the 99 other sheep for the one sheep. He'll look for us even if it means searching all night in the dark in a dirty house, uh, by candlelight, right? Just to find the one coin, even though he has nine other coins. But the third parable really highlights, like really like draws home the point for us of how irrational this love, this hunger for us is. Um, the, thir the third parable is the parable of the father and the two sons, or what we commonly refer to as the prodigal son. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll set it up for you again. There's a respected elderly man who has two sons, the younger son demands his share of the inheritance, uh, and it's not a simple demand, uh, because for the first century Jewish listener who hears this, they're thinking, holy moly, like this, this is bad, what this son just asked for. Why is it bad? Well, in Middle Eastern culture, it's like the worst thing you could do, that the son would go to the father and to the family and ask for the inheritance while the father is still alive. Why? Because the inheritance was only given based on the decision of the father. If you think back to the story of Jacob and Esau, their father had to decide to give the inheritance. And it was as he was, once he was no longer able-bodied and sort of approaching his death. So, you know, the father is the one who worked hard to manage and grow the inheritance and the wealth for his family. And ultimately, he decides who gets to keep the inheritance. And usually, he'll only give it out when he's no longer able-bodied and he's close to death. 
Usually the eldest son gets the most of the inheritance because the eldest son's responsibility is to keep the family name, to keep the family wealth going, okay? Um, and, but this is the younger son. The prodigal son is the younger son. And he goes to the father and says, give me my inheritance. Uh, and again, by doing so, what is he saying to the father? He's saying something really like unacceptable. He's essentially telling the father, I want my part now. I'm not waiting till you die. Essentially, he's saying, why don't you just die now? Right? And he's not asking for a simple thing of the father. He's asking him to give him a portion of the family farm, the family property. It's not money that he's asking for. He's asking for the farm so that he can sell it. In that culture, selling the inheritance you're given by your family means to deny your family, to deny your genealogy, your history. That was a very important thing. So he's saying, I'm going to take my part and sell it. I want out of the family. Okay, so he's already done like two really horrible things. And the people hearing the story would recognize that immediately. The son then proceeds to take the family wealth that is given to him by the father. And he gains that by selling the farm. And then he goes and he squanders it amongst Gentiles. How do we know they're Gentiles that he went amongst and squandered? Well, how does the story end or almost end halfway? He's among pigs. He's feeding pigs. And we know that if he was uh, amongst people who own pigs, they likely weren't Jews. So he's among the Gentiles. And that's unacceptable. Not just to his father, not just to his family, but to his whole community now. It's unacceptable that he would take the wealth of his family and squander it amongst Gentiles. So this prodigal son does a whole bunch of truly terrible things awful things, way worse than what we normally think he did that was wrong. We normally think, well, he went into a land, he did some bad stuff with his money, and then, you know, when it was all gone, he went back. That's not the bad stuff he did. All the bad stuff happened right at the beginning of the story, okay? And how does the father respond to this kid who wants his father to drop dead, who doesn't want anything to do with his family, and who wastes the family wealth for his own benefit? When he comes back to beg his father for more help, he's immediately accepted by the father who gathers all the friends and neighbors to rejoice. Okay? So that's how irrational God's love and hunger is for us. Even when we've done the worst possible thing, he's there and he's hungry for us. So Jesus' hunger is for us. Okay, back to the fig tree. From afar, Jesus is hungry and he sees a fig tree with many leaves. And this would have been a very unusual sight. You can kind of tell from that picture. It, the, they were in a desert, right? Like around Jerusalem, it's mostly like desert, like, you know, dry wasteland, not much plants. Moreover, it's early April at the time, kind of like now, maybe a little bit earlier. Um, and most of the plants wouldn't have started to give off any fruit. All the trees around are barren. They don't have anything on them. And they're in essentially a wilderness right now between Bethany and Jerusalem. So the tree that Jesus sees from afar when he's hungry is like this early bloomer. It's showing all the signs of a good tree, right? If everything around it is dead and it's like so full and it's got tons of leaves then it must be good. And the way fig trees grow is that first they bud with a green fruit, like a small little green thing. I've never seen one do this. I'm just based on what I, the video I watched. <laughs> um, then they give off leaves, and then a few weeks later, they give off fruit. So the fact that the tree was full of leaves, Jesus saw it from afar and assumed, well, it must have fruit. It's got a lot of leaves. But the tree wouldn't have fruit if it was no longer fruit-producing, okay? It was barren. It was no longer able to produce fruit. So Jesus suddenly sees the leaves on the tree. He's drawn to it, and there's a possibility that this tree can provide him with what he's looking for because we said he's hungry. He's looking for fruit. 
And so he does the next key thing that we'll focus on. Jesus goes to the tree. Okay? Um, And in the verses, it says, sorry, it says Jesus uh, went up to it. So Jesus goes to the tree. It's important to keep in mind that he went to it. We can look at chapter 15 again in Luke for clarification. Jesus goes after the sheep who is lost in the desert. He doesn't wait for the sheep to come back. The woman who loses the coin goes after the coin in the dark. When the father sees the prodigal son from afar off, the father goes out of the warm, safe, comfortable house into the dirty farm, running to him to bring him back into the family. Why is this relevant for us during this week? Well, St. Augustine, a famous church saint of the 4th century, highlighted this for us. He postulated that because of the original sin which Adam and Eve committed, human nature was transformed, and that we can't return to God on our own. God must come to himself and find us and bring us back to him. That's the, the grace that we always talk about, the undeserved gift of God. So Luke chapter 15 really highlights that for us, exactly what Augustine said. We need God to come get us out of the dark, cold desert that we are in. He will come to us there, and that's his grace. So Jesus is irrationally hungry for us, and he goes to find us. Okay, back to our fig tree. Once Jesus arrives to the tree, what does he do? He inspects the tree. Okay, Jesus inspects the tree, and he finds that there's no fruit. And naturally, any one of us, if you're in this position, when you're hungry and you're expecting fruit and you don't find fruit, you're now hangry, right? We expect Jesus to be annoyed. It's perfectly reasonable that he would um, get mad, say something he didn't mean, you know, that sort of thing. And when you read the passage, perhaps that's how we assume, that's how we interpret it. That's like, the words or the feelings or the emotions we put that are not really there. Uh, You know, historically, some some people have interpreted the passage this way, and they've said, look, Jesus wasn't perfect. He made a mistake. He cursed the fig tree, and then he killed it. And that's why, for whatever reason, that person didn't believe in Jesus. But that's not what happened. If you read carefully, nowhere does it say that Jesus was mad. It simply says that he inspected the tree. And he found nothing on it except leaves, right? In Mark, sorry, one of those is Matthew. This one is Mark. (laughs) When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. And so he says to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. So why? Why did Jesus say that about the tree? Well, because it was a dead tree. It gave the outward impression of fruit. It showed leaves. It showed the sign that it may have fruit. But when you inspect it, there's no evidence of any fruit. Jesus wasn't mad about this. uh, But he was just pouring out a sort of divine judgment on the tree. Okay, hold on. He's judging the tree. (laughs) What do you mean? So let's step out of the miracle for a second to understand what I'm talking about. So, funny enough, a few months earlier, Jesus tells a parable about a fig tree. Okay? So he explains what's happening here. And in the fig tree parable, Luke 13, verses 6 to 9, he tells the the parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig up around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. So in the parable, the man waits for three years for fruit and nothing comes of it and he wants to get rid of it. But the man taking care of the vineyard says, hold on, let's give it one more year. And the three entities in the story are symbolic, just like in any parable, and they're symbolic of different people. So the vineyard owner represents God, the one who rightfully 
expects to see fruit on his tree and justly decides to destroy the tree when he finds none. He's waited three years. He's given the tree lots of time, but there's no fruit. He has every right to say, destroy the tree. The gardener or the vineyard keeper who cares for the trees, watering and fertilizing them and bringing them to their peak, uh, this represents Jesus, uh, who feeds his people and gives them living water. And then the tree itself has two symbolic meanings in the story. One is the nation of Israel, and two is us, the individual who's reading the parable. So Jesus, in the story of the fig tree, condemns the fig tree that has no fruit because he comes up to the tree and he thinks, okay, still no fruit. You've had your chance. Fine. Looks like nobody's ever going to get fruit from you then. Okay? His disciples who are with him, who've heard the previous parable, they understand this. They understand the significance of this. The point is the time that we have is borrowed time. It's not permanent. God expects something from us, and we can ignore that for a while, but his patience has a limit. He waits for a reasonable amount of time, and he is even gracious and merciful and waits beyond that time. Okay? But at some point, he has to judge us, not because he's mad at us, but because at some point, we've sort of decided for ourselves our own fate by repeatedly ignoring the warnings. Notice that all the readings this evening, or not all, but two of the readings, were about being watchful and being ready for judgment. That's not a mistake. It's not haphazard. It ties back to what Jesus says to the, fruit tree, the fig tree. Jesus' morning is looking for our fruits, and he's willing to wait and give us time, way more than we deserve. But eventually, he's going to inspect us and judge us, and for that, we have to be watchful and waiting. Okay. We've been talking a lot about... Okay, we've been talking a lot about fruit. We said Jesus is rationally hungry for us and he'll go to find us and he'll inspect us all for fruit. Is it figs? Is the fruit that he wants from us figs? Is the fig tree? No. So what's the fruit that he's looking for? Okay, we're going to step out one more time from the fig tree story to help us understand. We'll look at a parable that Jesus teaches in the temple later on today. Okay, after the fig tree. So he goes into the temple, he cleanses the temple uh, from the, the buying and the selling that's happening in the front of the temple. And then he goes into the temple and starts to teach. And he tells this story, or this parable. Pay attention because it really highlights for us what the fruit is that Jesus is looking for from the fig tree and from us. So... Jesus says to the people listening, What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. So Jesus explains the problem and the solution. The solution is the fruit that he's looking for. The problem is hypocrisy. The person who says all the right things gives the outward appearance of obedience, the outward appearance of being righteous, the leaves on the fig tree, but doesn't really do anything about it. It's talk. The show is empty. The fig tree, with all of its full leaves, is barren and has no fruit. The, the people who were in the temple, like the nation of Israel, that had control of the temple gave the illusion of having a strong and, and uh, fruitful relationship with God. But when Jesus goes into the temple, he finds that all they're doing is buying and selling and ripping people off. 
So they don't have that fruit that he's looking for. But the fruit is actually the solution to this problem. He tells us right at the end of the parable in plain English, the fruit is to believe in the salvation of Christ and the power of the resurrection and to change. Change is another word for repent. So Jesus is looking for fruit in me, for repentance, that I surrender to God as the Almighty, the sovereign God, and that I totally turn around from my mistakes to him. And that's the definition of repentance, to fully turn around to him. Even though repentance typically includes sorrow and regret that come with it, it's more than just that. Repenting is to make a complete change of direction, a 180-degree turn back towards God. And if I don't repent, what happens? Well, the, the parable or the, the story of the fig tree tells us, if I don't repent, I've sealed my own fate. I'm barren, I'm fruitless, and I wither away. But what happens if I repent and turn back to God? We hear that in, again, Luke chapter 15. I say to you that likewise, joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repents more than over 99 just persons which need no repentance. Like we said yesterday, there's joy and rejoicing in all of heaven, and God is so happy when we come back repenting and he brings us back. The shepherd carries the sheep back to the house and rejoices with the neighbors. The woman finds her coins and calls all the neighbors over and they rejoice. The father brings the prodigal son back into the house that he rejected and into the arms of the man that he wanted dead. And there's a huge party and a celebration. So God is hungry for us. When we're lost in the desert, he goes to us. Jesus inspects us, and he's looking for fruit of repentance. And if he finds that, he rejoices, and he takes us back, and there's great joy over our return. Glory be to God forevermore. God bless you all. We'll just take a few minutes now, if you want to stand or to stay sitting, whatever you like, to close our eyes. just relish in the embrace of the one who leaves the 99, the one who lights every candle in the house to search for the lost coin, the one who forsakes his dignity as the father of this household and the patriarch of this farm, this establishment. after he's been disgraced by his youngest son, he throws all his dignity and caution to the wind and runs out to meet us. Let's relish in a moment the hunger of God for you and for me. You see, God isn't asking us to, to plead for the forgiveness of our sins with the uncertainty of whether he may or may not forgive us. Rather, he has taken the first step. He has, he has jumped out. He has run out to meet us. What fruit will he find as he inspects my soul?
Lord Jesus Christ, as we embrace your forgiveness, Lord, as we, as we respond to your embrace with an embrace, Lord. I beg you, Lord, let my embrace not be the embrace of Judas, Lord, the embrace of betrayal. Let my embrace, Lord, not be the embrace of hypocrisy. I say all the right words. Maybe even, Lord, I've managed to conjure up the right feelings. Maybe I, I've managed to conjure up some tears in my eyes. Lord, I know that you're looking for a real change. I'm looking, I know that you're looking for a real and deep desire for a real change in my life. And I'm embarrassed, Lord, to ask you, Lord, to help me to do it. Lord, I know that my apology should come fully furnished with a plan of, of how to rectify things and how to make things better. But I've learned, Lord, been down this road a few times of saying sorry and having great plans of how I'm, I'm going to make everything better. And I've learned, Lord, that only you, only you, Lord, can make it better. Lord, words are good. Prayers are good. Emotions are good, can be good. But I want, Lord, to give you the fruit that you're looking for, which is a real change of direction, a real change of mind, a real change of heart, a real change of perspective, that I see things differently.